Okay, it's good to see uh, so many people here, um, and uh, it's really good that all of us are here right from the beginning of uh, the book of Revelation, because I think that it's uh, very important to begin from the beginning, and uh, I think that the people who are in Batam right now, they'll be uh, listening to this uh, later during the week as well. So why don't we go to God in prayer now, and uh, really ask God to help Him to understand His Word to us today. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We truly want to thank you for the book of Revelation. Uh, we come to it with a sense of expectancy that you will unveil your word to us so that we may truly know how to live, that we may know who you are, and to know what to expect in the future. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I get lots of email every week. In fact, I get lots of email every day. Now, I think that uh, for all of us, we all have email. Anybody here not have email? I think most, most people receive email in one way or another. But do you read all the email that you receive? I think the answer is no, isn't it? Uh, even my own father, who hardly uses a computer, tells me that he doesn't read all his email because he gets lots of spam and junk. So how do you know what to read? When the email comes in, what is it that actually tells you I should read this or I shouldn't read this? Well, I think there are basically two things you look for, isn't it? You look for the sender, uh, who it's coming from, and you look for the content of the email. So if you see something like, you know, you just won a lucky prize, and uh, the sender is somewhere from uh, Nigeria, or, you know, there's something that says, oh, uh, you've just won the lottery, and it comes from Microsoft Russia, then you think, okay, I'm going to delete that. But obviously, if you find another email which says, uh, urgent, respond by today and it comes from your boss, then obviously it's a very different category of email and you want to look at it straight away and pay attention to it. Now I hope that uh, obviously when you receive a letter from your pastor, an email from your pastor, that's exactly the way you treat it, right? You open it and read it when I send you those emails during the week. But as we come to the book of Revelation, what is it that we should, you know, how should we treat it? What sort of uh, email, what sort of letter is it that we should pay attention to it? Well, right from the very first off, it tells us who it's from and what, we, what it's about and why we should pay attention to it. Now, if you haven't got a Bible, uh, I suggest that you, you know, quickly get around for the back because we'll be needing it very seriously in a few moments because we're going to go through it very uh, closely. But right from the first verse, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, uh, which is to Jesus, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, as you look at this uh, passage, the first thing that strikes you is it says that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, what does it mean? It's describing what we're going to read in the book of Revelation. Now, in the past, uh, in the older, older translations, the word revelation here was translated the word the apocalypse of Jesus, okay, of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the reason is because the very first word that comes from uh, this book, if you read the original language, it says the apocalypse of Jesus Christo. Okay, so, that means if you look at the original word, the, the first word that begins this letter is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. 
Now, when you think of the word apocalypse, what do you think of? You think of something like this, right? You think of some destructive, you know, science fiction, uh, futuristic, very uh, dystopian view of the future where everything is going to go up in a big mess of uh, zombies or nuclear war, isn't it? But actually, the word apocalypse or the word is it literally the word revelation. Uh, and uh, the word revelation, uh, literally, if you listen to what my translation of this, uh, the Greek uh, says, it literally means the unveiling the uncovering, the revealing, or the revelation of something. So as we come to the book of Revelation, the first thing I want to draw to your attention is, is that it is unveiling something, it's uncovering something. And it is the uncovering of something that we cannot find out on our own. So imagine if I cover, I don't know, if I cover something here with this bag, okay? Uh, what the book of Revelation is, is literally lifting off the cover of something that's covering it, so that we can, it reveals what's underneath. And it says there is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not saying that the whole book of Revelation is just about Jesus Christ, but what it's saying is it's, about, it's a revelation from the person of Jesus. And the reason why we say that is because if you look at the, the way the passage is structured, you can see that it's actually from God to Jesus, to the angels, to John, to his servants. So if you look at verse 1 to 2, that's the way that it's structured. Okay, to help you understand it a bit better, I'll put it here in a diagram. But that's basically what it says. It is from God who gives it to Jesus, who through the angels gives it to John, and from John he gives it to his servants, the Christians. And I think that's a very, very important starting point as we begin the book of Revelation. Because I don't know about you, um, but when I first started uh, thinking about Revelation before I was a Christian, you always think that Revelation is a book that is very difficult and very hard to understand. It's going to confuse you or muddle your mind. Even if you're a mature Christian, you know, people come to the book of Revelation with a sense of fear and trepidation. But actually, the whole point of Revelation is not to confuse us or to muddle us, but to lift up and unveil to us, uncover to us, what God's plan is and who He is and about what Jesus is telling us. Okay? So, I know that sometimes when you think of the book of Revelation, you think of like a you know, people say, oh, no, this is Gorbachev. And, you know, he's got that, that, that birthmark on his head. So, he's 666. He's the devil, right? Okay? Or, or they say, oh, you know, like the next one, like barcodes. Right? Barcodes. You, sh- you should never use barcodes. Or, you know, because barcodes are all the sign of the devil on you. Because, you know, there, there are three levels of six there. Okay? So, when you come to the Bible, when you come to the book of Revelation, we shouldn't be like thinking, oh... You know, how will we ever find out who the next Gorbachev is or whether barcodes are really the mark of the devil? Because as we come to the book of Revelation, that's not what it's really concerned about. It's about God revealing to us what His plans are to the future. So as we come to the book of Revelation, what I really encourage you to do is have a sense of expectancy of learning something, that God is wanting to reveal something to you, not to cover it up and make you confused. But as we look at verse 1 to 3, as well, it tells us what the book is about. It is from Jesus to us, it's from God through Jesus to us. But what is it about? Well, it says there in verse 1, it is to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay, what must soon take place. And in verse 3, uh, it says there, it says, because the time is near. So there's a sense where there is a shortness of time. And something is going to happen soon. And that's what God is revealing. That's what God is lifting up the veil over to show His people what is going to happen soon. 
Now again, many people around the world are very fascinated by what's going to happen soon. And they spend all their time trying to figure out, okay, where is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? Who is it going to happen to? But I think the word that I really want to focus on as we look at this passage is not what's going to happen soon, in terms of finding the date and the place and the hours, but it is the word must, isn't it? The word must. There is a sense of certainty that God is in control of the whole world and Jesus is the control of the whole world. And what is unveiled, what is lifted up, is a sure, certain future. The word must here is the same word that Jesus uses in Luke when he prophesizes about his own death. The Son of Man must, exactly the same word, be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So what's happening here is, God is lifting up this veil for us through Jesus' testimony to us. He tells us what's going to happen. And in verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads it. We're reading this word. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now the word here is that, that taking the heart means that we must take it into our heart and respond with action. There is a concrete action that is responded to. So the lifting up of this veil by God is not so that we have intellectual knowledge. But the blessing comes to us when we take it to heart and we respond with concrete action. So how are we blessed? How are we blessed? Now, the blessing doesn't come because, you know, when you read the book of Revelation, you'll feel very holy, you know. You'll feel like, you know, this magical peace come upon you. The blessing won't come to you because you will, you will, you will, everything will go well for you for the rest of your life or that you'll be healthier or wealthier. The blessing comes because through the knowledge of this revelation, the lifting of this veil, you know how to live in the future. You see, it's the same way where I say to you right now, there is a bomb right underneath Andrew's chair. If you take that to heart, what will you do? You will all run out and then the bomb will explode and only Andrew will die. No, that only everybody will live, right? And that's how we will be blessed. Because since we know the future, we will know how to act. Now that is how we are blessed by the book of Revelation, by taking action, by taking to heart what we learn. Now, the wrong response would be, I say to you, there is a bomb underneath Andrew. And you all go to the front and you say, yeah, there's a bomb there. I wonder when it's exactly going to explode, right? And we try to figure out the minute and the second that it explodes and then when it explodes, we all die. Okay, that's not being blessed. But you see, that's exactly how some people treat the book of Revelation. They, they, they want to work out exactly when everything is going to happen, who is going to happen to, who's the Gorbachev, the 666 mark, you know, where the marks on your hands and everything else. But they don't take it to heart. And, and respond to escape the coming future. So, I know that uh, some of you might know this person. Who's this person? You know who this person is? He's been in the newspaper very recently. His name is uh, Harold Camping. Okay, he, uh, I don't know, he's from America. And he, owns, he runs a, a church there. And he predicted that the world would end in May 21st, 2011. But obviously, it didn't. Right? And I think that the, the, the whole point of Revelation is not to point us to a particular day and time to, so that we can figure it out, but actually it's a general warning of, of being ready, of being prepared, of taking to heart the warnings of when Jesus is going to come. 
So that, you know, for myself, and I'm not sure about uh, you, but I've met other people who are self-confessed experts in Revelation. They will tell you the time, they will tell you the place, they will tell you exactly everything that's going to happen. But their lives are not filled with taking to heart what Revelation is saying because they live ungodly lives and they live immoral lives. They are not ready for the future that has been unveiled to us by God. Now this word blessed here is very important um, because actually blessed, you know the Beatitudes in uh, the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes actually come because it, it means blessed, right? Beatitudes is blessed. And then within the book of Revelation, there's seven times, seven times where the, the theme of blessedness comes in, being blessed. Okay, now seven is very important in the book of Revelation. We will see that as we go along. But seven times in the book of Revelation, this word blessed appears. And uh, this commentator has gone through each of the seven times. And he says, you know, the first one is about blessed, about reading and keeping. In chapter 14, there's blessed for faithfulness. Uh, in uh, chapter 16, there's blessedness for being ready for the Lord's return. Uh, there is blessedness in the sense where you get rest and an invitation to the Lord's marriage and so on and so forth. And this is what his conclusion is about the theme of blessedness in Revelation. He says, Revelation is about two things, obedience unto death and the preparation for the end with the reward being eschatological blessing. Uh, eschatological literally means the future, future blessing. So, blessing in the book of Revelation always means concrete action. Holding on unto death. Faithfulness. Listening and doing. The blessedness doesn't come from intellectual knowledge, but from concrete action. So, that's the second thing that the book of Revelation tells us. That is about revealing the future, but it's also about action. There's no point if you're going to spend the next few months studying the book of Revelation, and you just think that we are going to come here, we're going to study the Bible, study, listen to the sermon, and just find out what the book of Revelation is, and that's good. No, we should come to the book of Revelation, as it says here, with the intent of taking it to heart and changing our behavior. So the first thing is, it's from Jesus, it's about the future, and it's about taking to heart what the future is about and about God and Jesus. But who is it to? Who is the book of Revelation to? Well, in verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, <clears throat> what does it mean, the seven churches of Asia? Uh, that's very strange, because in verse 1, he already said it's to his servants. So you presume it's to everybody, all Christians. But who are these seven churches in Asia? Now, the seven churches in Asia are not the church in Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, Jakarta, uh, Hanoi and uh, uh, um, I don't know what else is there Ho Chi, Minh, Ho Chi Minh City or whatever, right? Because Asia is uh, Asia as in uh, Asia Minor in Turkey. Okay, so um, this is the map of Asia Minor. So you can see that uh, this is the olden, not not today lah. Okay, this is uh, first century Jesus time. So Asia will be here: Macedonia, Rome, uh, Israel. Uh, okay, so Asia Minor is actually here. Uh, this is the next map. And today, this is uh, Turkey today. Asia Minor will be Turkey today. And the seven churches, which we'll see in chapter 2, are these churches, right? Oh, actually, chapter 1, you can see it already, right? Pergamum, Tyrateria, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Ephesus, 
and Laodicea. Now the problem is that if the book of Revelation is just to these seven churches, then why should we bother reading it? Because it's just related to them, isn't it? It's like uh, reading somebody else's love letter. Very interesting, but irrelevant to you, isn't it? Correct? But the thing is, as we will go through the book of Revelation, we will see that actually seven is a very important number. So, in the book of Revelation, there are seven blessing passages. And here are seven churches. But we know from the Bible that there are more than seven churches or church cities in that time in Asia Minor. Okay, so if you look at the next map, I don't know whether it's big enough for you, but you can see that this is a Paul, the Apostle's second journey, second missionary journey, and already you can see that there's Ephesus, but also he set up a church in Troas. Okay, so we know that Troas was one of the major churches in Asia Minor at the time. Okay, next map, this is Paul's, oh, Actually, it's not his second, this is his third, right? <laughs> Sorry, don't worry about that, that's wrong. Okay, it's his third missionary journey. But you can see that not only did he go to Troas, but he went to Miletus and Kors. Okay, and we know that also in, in, uh, from the book of Colossians, that Colossae was also in Asia, and there was also another church in Hieropolis. So what happened to these other poor churches, right? They didn't make it to the book of Revelation. What happened? Is it because they're not in the Premier League? You know, they're only in the minor leagues, right? No, I think it's, it's because the book of Revelation is very symbolic and seven is a very important number. See, and that's one of the reasons why we find it difficult to read the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is so different from the rest of the books in the New Testament. So you think of the book of the New Testament, you have the Gospels and the book of Acts. And the book of Gospels and Acts are very historical writing, right? It's basically about history. Then the other books are like letters, you know, Letters to Ephesians, the letters to Colossae, the, 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 the letters to Philippi. So when you read those letters, you read it in a literal way. Because it's history, you read history literally, you read a letter literally. But as you come to the book of Revelation, it's different, you have to change your mindset because it's symbolic, it's an apocalyptic style of writing. Right? So it's about, a bit like when you read books, it's good to read books actually. I hope many of you read books, not just uh, watch TV or movies or surf the net. Right? Because there's different style of writing, right? So there's historical writing, then there's poetry, and then there's you know, science fiction, all sorts of stuff. And, and you see, as you read more, you realize that it helps you to understand different sorts of styles of writing. So one uh, uh, preacher, which I heard preaching on this, is a very profound statement. He said, one mistake that many people make is that they read the Gospels and the letters in a symbolic way, but they read the book of Revelation in a literal way. But he said that that's where all problems begin. You see, that's because that's the wrong sort of reading for different sorts of literature. We read history and we read letters. Uh, literally, Jesus really walked on the water. It's not a metaphorical thing, right? It's a real thing. He walked on water. But as we come to the book of Revelation, it's filled with a lot more symbolism. So we must understand what the symbolism is trying to tell us instead of looking at it literally. You know, when it says that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth, I don't think when we see Jesus that, you know, oh, that's Jesus because he's got this big sword coming out of his mouth, right? No, it means something. There's a symbolism there. But the problem is symbols are difficult and that's why we find uh, Revelation difficult. 
Because symbol can mean anything. So you see a woman walking down the street and she's wearing a dress. And on that dress, she has all these pictures of fish. What does it mean? Well, you know, fish in the ancient Greek can mean Christian, the word for Christ. So maybe she's a Christian. That's why she's walking around with this dress full of fish. Or maybe she's not a Christian at all. She's really into astrology. right? She's a Pisces. So she walks around with this dress full of fish. Or maybe she's part of the fishing club. And this is a fishing club dress. right? Or maybe her husband caught a fish like this. Or maybe she just likes fish or the color of the fish. Alright, so how do you know? Well, when you come to the book of Revelation, uh, we use the book of Revelation as well as the other parts of the Bible to help us to understand the symbols. So there's this guy, Eugene Peterson, and uh, I don't agree with everything he writes, but some of the things that he writes are quite profound. And he said that we shouldn't read the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, without reading the first 65. Because it's only by reading the other 65 that helps us to understand the book of Revelation. See, one mistake that some people make, and these people are usually the fringe, uh, you know, more loony Christians, right? Is that they think that, okay, I will use the book of Revelation, and through the book of Revelation, I'll understand the rest of the Bible. Okay, it's like taking the Lord of the Rings approach to the Bible. You know, you know Lord of the Rings, there's one ring to rule all the other rings? You remember that? Okay, you need to read more and watch more movies. Right? There's one ring to rule the rest of the rings. Well, some people see that well, you know, the book of Revelation rules the other 65 books of the Bible, but that's the wrong way of understanding Revelation. We must understand the book of Revelation together and consistently with the other 65 books of the Bible. So, when you think of the other parts of the Bible, and you think of uh, the book of Revelation, seven is a very symbolic number. God made the world in... Seven days, right? It's a picture of completeness. Uh, in the book of Revelation, seven keeps coming up. Seven blessings, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven angels, seven stars. So the word here, seven, uh, actually has a, a symbolic meaning of completeness, fullness, totality. So when he's writing to the seven churches, he's not just writing to the seven churches, but the complete church. Uh, these may be the problems of the seven churches, but they are also the problems of the churches in whole, all history and also in all time, in all place. Not just in the Asia Minor, but all over the world, universal. And I think that uh, it's not very foreign to us, right? Uh, if you go to a hotel, you find that uh, you go to press the 13th floor and there's no 13th floor. You want to book an airplane ticket, there's no 13th a, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Um, and you see people driving around cars with a lot of eights, right? Because they mean something. So seven in the Bible, seven revelation means completeness, fullness. You can see that in verse 4b, right? Where it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Okay, now here we have the Trinity, Trinity. We have grace and peace to you from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. That must be God. From the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ. Now, the seven spirits are not seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. In the whole of the Bible, 65 books, 
there is only one Holy Spirit. In chapter 22, verse 17, there is also one Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. So there cannot be seven Holy Spirits, there is only one Holy Spirit. But the word seven spirits here is used to say that it is the complete and total and full Holy Spirit. So, grace and peace to the people from God the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the one complete Holy Spirit. So that means that uh, as we come here, this message is from the Trinity. But then in verse 5 onwards, it tells us a very complete description of Jesus Christ. Can I put it up here on the slide for you? Uh, We're going to take a little while on this because there's so much uh, detail. But you can uh, follow it up here. It says it's from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. It says that to him who loves us and freed us from by his freed us from his, our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, here, we look at this again. Amazing point here. There are seven points about Jesus. Uh, you, you have to see for yourself, but they're actually seven, saying seven things about Jesus. The first thing he's saying is that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Oh, sorry, is that the firstborn from the dead? No, no. Faithful witness. Sorry, I skipped the section there. Just making sure you're paying attention. Okay? So he's the faithful witness. Now, again, other parts of the Bible tell us that he is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness in what he says, and he is the faithful witness in who he is. Okay, in uh, John chapter 18, it says that Jesus, you know, says that I testify to truth. He is the faithful witness in what he says. But in the book of Hebrews, he in his own body testifies to God because of the way that he lives and who he is. And it's very important that Jesus is the faithful witness because the book of Revelation comes through who? Through Jesus Christ. We need him to be faithful so that we can rely on the book of Revelation for what he's telling us. But not only that, it says there that he is the firstborn from the dead. That means that Jesus rising from the dead is not a once and for all happening, but he is the first of many people who arise from the dead. His resurrection from the dead sets the pattern for all of us who arise from the dead all of us here as his people. But not only that, it says there that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, the idea of firstborn also has the idea of being the heir. I know it's very unfair. I was the firstborn in my family. And if you live in the first century, uh, the firstborn usually inherits everything. They get to be the king, the ruler of all the other kids, right? Very unfair. But, but that's the idea here, isn't it? Jesus is not just the firstborn. It's the first one who is born forever and ever, but he is the firstborn who will inherit the whole world. He will rule the world under God. So here, who is Jesus? He's the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. But the next section deals with his relationship with uh, God's people. What is God's? Re- what is Jesus' relationship to you? Well, God, Jesus' relationship to you is that. He, he loves us. Right? The next slide. He loves us. 
He loves you, He loves me. Now how do we know that He loves us? He loves us because it says that He freed us from our sins by His blood. That means by going on the cross, He dies for a purpose. His blood frees us from our sins and frees us from the condemnation of sin. Now the important thing here is that it doesn't say He is freeing us from our sins or it doesn't say He will free us from our sins but that He has freed us from our sins. So Jesus' motivation to us has been shown by a specific act in the past. But He has freed us for a purpose. He has freed us not so that we can go and do what we want to do and have fun and just ignore God but He's freed us to be a kingdom and priest to serve God. We used to be slaves to sin, but now we are part of God's people, His kingdom. We used to be sinners, but now we are holy priests. And in every way we serve God. But last of all, in verse 7, there is a picture here of Jesus coming in the future in judgment. Now there are two passages here. Again, remember I said the Old Testament helps us understand the book of Revelation. Uh, there's the book of Daniel and the book of Zechariah. Okay, if you look at this passage, it says there in uh, Daniel, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that's what's being referred to in verse 7, isn't it, the first part? Look, he's coming with the clouds, every eye will see him. He's coming in judgment. And in Zechariah chapter 12, this is how people will feel when Jesus comes. And I'll pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Israel a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, and the one they, they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So Zechariah here talks about mourning, isn't it? Mourning. So if you go back again to the previous slide. Now, again, how do we understand this? You can't understand this passage literally because if you look back at history, there's only one person who ever pierced Jesus. And that was the Roman centurion who stabbed Jesus uh, when he was hanging on the cross. So if you read it literally, you sort of think, well, Jesus will come back in judgment and all he will judge is that one poor Roman soldier, right? How sad for him. But that's not true because the symbolic language is the piercing of Jesus came about not just through the Roman soldier but also through the Jewish authorities, through the people who rejected Jesus, from people who condemned him. And what he's saying is when Jesus comes in judgment, everyone who rejects Jesus is like the one who pierces him, who attacks and rejects Jesus. And that's exactly... Uh, what Jesus says of himself in Matthew chapter 24. It says, At the time of judgment, the, son of man, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Okay, so, the same idea of mourning and of judgment. So, there are the seven... Uh, seven Descriptions of Jesus. Now, I think this is very important, isn't it? Because again, it is reinforcing to us 
why it's so important to pay attention to the book of Revelation. See, you get mail, right? Okay, you get different sorts of mail. And some mail, you just discard. Okay, real estate agent, throw away, right? Unless you're looking for buy a piece of property, okay? Uh, there's, you know, you also get mail from the shopping center or, you know, the next shop. I throw them away before my wife gets it, okay? Uh, then you also get other sort of mail, okay? And that uh, other sort of mail you really pay attention to. You know, like the mail which says tax office. Oh, that one you really have to open it. Or, you know, road transport authority. Oh, that one you really have to open too, isn't it? In case, you know, you ran a red light or something. Or, you know, maybe if you're a student, and it's exam time, and you find there's a letter from your university. You think, oh, I better open it up. Maybe, you know, I, I, I didn't do very well. But that's the same thing. You see, when you come to this passage, you see that the, you need to pay attention to this letter because it's coming from Jesus. And he is the one who is the faithful witness. So you know that, okay, this is reliable, this letter, okay? And it's the first one from the dead. So he's got the power to give you eternal life. And he's the ruler of the kings, not just a ruler of the resurrected world, but for the ruler of the whole world. So it's like getting a letter from the Prime Minister or even more greater than that. And he loves us. And he's died for us. And he's made us into a kingdom of priests. And also, he's going to come again in judgment in the future. So we really want to open this letter and we really want to pay attention to what he's saying because the, the writer is so important. But the picture doesn't end there. Uh, if you turn over the page, you'll see that uh, John gets a vision. And uh, as you read uh, this vision, it's actually a very powerful vision. And as we look at it now, let's turn over the page, I want you to not uh, read it as, uh, you know, try to use your imagination. Really feel what this picture is saying and not just sort of try to say, okay, you know, what does that really mean? Just feel what it, the picture is trying to, to show you, right? So he turns around and he sees uh, seven golden lampstands, which we know as a church. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, so we know that's Jesus, and he's dressed uh, in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. So, Jesus is walking among the churches. What does that mean? Well, if you close your eyes and imagine it, Jesus is actually among us now. He's here in the church. He knows what's happening. He cares about what's happening. He's wearing this white robe with this uh, golden sash around his chest. Well, imagine if I came up today to preach and I was wearing this white robe with a golden sash. You'll tell you know, Andrew's getting a, you know, a bit uh, 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 proud, right? You know, because it's a very grand or majestic picture. You know, golden sash sort of thing. And his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. Okay, snow is very white. So, you know, it's, it's such an impressive picture maybe of wisdom and, and, and uh, weight of age. His eyes were like blazing fire. Okay, I mean, maybe it's very scary picture. What does it mean? We're not sure. Maybe it's inside, but whatever it is, it's a very frightening picture. And then it says that his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. So he's got heavy feet. Is that what it's saying? No, I think he's saying that he's a very solid person, right? He doesn't have feet of clay, but he's very solid. You know, he's got, he, he's got real weight behind him. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. Now, what does that mean? Is that like uh, water going down your toilet sink or what was that? No, it's like sound of like, have you ever been in a, uh, standing underneath a waterfall? That sort of overpowering, loud voice. And then, at the same time, uh, his hand was controlling all these stars, which are actually the angels. Of the church. Again, you know, he controls the future of the churches, controls uh, what's happening to his Christian people. 
But out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword. So again, it's a very frightening picture that his words or voice can hurt you. But there's some power behind it. And his face was like shining, or the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, any of you looked at the sun directly recently? No, you can't. You can't look at the sun. Well, his face is like that. You know, he's so brilliant that you can't look at him. Uh, I guess which means that uh, we're not really sure how John saw this picture because he couldn't look at him, right? But see, that's what I mean. It's not a literal picture. It's a symbolic picture. And I think that it's really important to get a, the emotion of what John saw because John sees an awesome figure. See, what we see here in verse 12 to 16 is not like a police identicate, you know. Okay, you know someone robbed a bank or stole something or murdered someone, so you know they get a police identicate. So next time, how will we know when Jesus comes to judgment? Because we see this ca- character coming and he's got bronze shoes, right? And a sword coming out of his mouth and white hair. No, that's not it, right? It, he's trying to show us what Jesus is really like. That he's this awesome character. I like what this uh, pastor uh, and writer Don Carson said. He said, if you saw God or if you saw Jesus, you wouldn't have the right words in the English vocabulary or Chinese vocabulary to be able to describe God. Because God is beyond our understanding and beyond our description. And he gives us an illustration of how his son-in-law is a missionary to Papua New Guinea. He says, his son was trying to explain to these villagers who have no running water, no electricity, how you, you, you actually have light in, in, our, in the houses, right, in America and Singapore. And he said, how do you explain to a Papua New Guinea native that you have light through electricity and a plug in a wall? Well, maybe you say, you know, there's a snake that comes out of the wall and it goes around and then it, there's fire in that snake and then it goes up into this thing which looks like a fruit. But then in that fruit, when you turn on this fire, the fruit will shine like the sun. And I think that's a very good way of understanding how the, the description of Jesus here is, isn't it? That it is not a, a totally perfect description, but it's a symbolic description of who Jesus is. And Jesus really is an awesome character. See, we, we overuse the word awesome nowadays, right? So, you know, a person dribbles past three players and he kicks a leather ball into a net past another player and we think that's awesome, right? Or, you, you, you know, you hit a tennis ball uh, and he hits the line uh, past someone who's diving across the net and you think that's awesome. Or maybe there's a handbag you really like and it's on 80% off. And you think that's really awesome too, right? But that's not really awesome. Awesome is this picture of Jesus. That he is so powerful and magnificent and, and, and glorious and the grandeur of it all. And that's the picture we're supposed to have. And I think part of the reason comes in verse 9, isn't it? In verse 9. Because we see that John here, the writer, is actually suffering. He says, I, John, your brother and companion, the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that ours in Jesus Christ was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, John, the writer, was uh, here, the next slide, was on this small little island, okay? And uh, he wasn't there, and this island was not like Sentosa, he's not a Universal Studio or uh, Bali or Phuket, but he's actually, doing, he's actually doing hard labor there because he's being persecuted. And what he says is that the Christian life is made out of three things. Right? Look at what it says there in verse 9, the three things that characterize the Christian life. Suffering, kingdom, patient endurance. Now, for us, we always like the middle one. 
kingdom. We all like the kingdom one. And uh, we think that the Christian life is all about kingdom. Okay, we, we, we actually look only for the kingdom part. But actually, the real Christian life, the true Christian life, is also about suffering and endurance. In fact, it's two out of three. And the, the point that's made, uh, again, in this book that I was reading about, it's called Basic, uh, Basics for Believers. He says, many of us have a temptation to opt for a domesticated version of the gospel. We want enough to make us happy and secure, but so, not so much that we uh, really affects our lives. We want ecstasy, not repentance, security, not selfless love and service. And I think what this picture of Jesus actually does is it, it takes us from having a domesticated you know, Jesus. You know, Jesus is not like our little dog you know, who's just like wagging his tail and wants a bit of attention from us every day. Jesus is this huge, awesome character who demands us to follow him through this suffering and through this patient endurance. And that's what this whole book is about. It's about the picture of Jesus and as we have a strong picture of Jesus and we know the future, we will be able to go through this suffering and patient endurance. So let me ask you, when you think of Jesus, uh, what is your picture of Jesus? Uh, do you think of Jesus as the little baby in the manger? Uh, when you think of Jesus, do you think of Jesus hanging on the cross? Well, the reality is, if you go to Israel today, you will not find Jesus hanging on the cross. Okay, there is no Jesus on the cross museum there where he's still hanging on the cross. But he is off the cross and where is he now? He's in heaven. And what is he really like in heaven? This is what he's really like. He is still fully human, but this is his divine nature. His powerful nature. And when we know what Jesus is really like, then we can live the Christian life. We can suffer, we can have patient endurance, we can be ready for Jesus' return. So in conclusion, uh, again I got another good illustration from this pastor called John Chapman and he said that he saw this movie and uh, in this movie there was a woman who was blind. Okay, And uh, I'm sure this is a very cli- you know, movie cliche. So obviously the blind woman is attacked by a murderer and because she's blind she can't see what's happening, right? So you... The viewer knows what's happening. The lights are on, but she can't see what's happening. The murderer is stalking her and she's wandering around, totally oblivious that the murderer is going to stab her in the back with this knife. And he says that actually the book of uh, Revelation is like that. We can't see what's happening. We don't know what's happening in the future. You know, we, we, don't, we are unaware of all these dangers. We can't see what the real reality, the heavenly realities of God and Jesus are. But the book of Revelation lifts it up for us takes off the blindfolds, gives us eyes to see. And when we are able to see how big God is, when we are able to see what the future holds, we are able to see that, you know, what our present strugglings are like, then we are able to live the right life before God. And the first thing we have to do, the first thing we have to know is we can trust the book of Revelation. Because it comes from Jesus who is faithful, it comes from Jesus who loves us. It comes from this great and awesome Jesus who is this mighty figure but yet died on the cross to save us from our sins. So the book of Revelation says, listen, listen. Listen because it comes from Jesus and it's going to tell you how you should live and you need to get ready and to change as you listen to Jesus in the book of Revelation. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. 
Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that as we come to your word in the book of Revelation, that you will open up our eyes to see what is going to happen in the future, but also to see what your heavenly reality is like. The power and the grandeur and the might and the awesomeness of your Son, Jesus. And to see how He has spoken to us and how as long as He is behind us and with us and for us, we have nothing to fear. Help us to to see the world as it really is, as it is unfolded for us and unveiled for us in the book of Revelation, so that we may know the present day, we may know the future, and we may know how to live and where the dangers are and how to avoid them. Dear Father, help us to have a heart willing to repent and to submit and to bow before you so that truly we will be in the book of life and will live forevermore in the kingdom with you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.